Winston Churchill once said that um, <clears throat> I can give you a speech that takes 45 minutes, no problem, but ask me to do one in 10 minutes now, that really takes a lot of work. And I'm afraid my style tends to be fairly verbose, uh, and Philip has tried to bring me under control um, <clears throat> this morning. So uh, welcome to the penultimate in our um, a series of uh, summer psalms. Um, uh, welcome to those of you who are new to the church. Let my, me add my welcome. I'm Peter Wilson. I'm one of the church members, uh, a local consultant at uh, Kingston Hospital. Um, for those of you who are not uh, new to the church, just plain hi. Uh, for those of you who are visiting from other churches, see some friends up at the back there. You're welcome as well. It's great to see you. So um, <clears throat> let's move forward. The the, um, the psalm that I've chosen, you'll be pleased to know, uh, is Psalm 134. Now, why are you pleased to know it's Psalm 134? Well, it, it's only got three sentences. So I was forced to keep it short, but just bearing in mind that those three sentences are, in fact, one chapter. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> uh, but the main point from Psalm 134 that I want to get uh, to, uh, which is the, the, the psalm here, is really to encourage us uh, to seek and to remain in God's presence, particularly when times are hard, which is why I've subtitled this Servants Who Stand. Um, <clears throat> however, by way of introduction, after I read this psalm, what I want to do is say something quickly about taking meaning from psalms in general, but also... Uh, putting this particular psalm in the context of those around it. So let's just read Psalm 134 together. Psalm 134, a song of ascents. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who has made heaven and earth. First of all, just something to say about taking meaning from song. Because psalms are different. Let me just play something. Those of you who know Adele's um, song, let me just read you the first few, few verses, the first few words of Adele's song, Hello. It's her signature tune from uh, the, the, um, the album uh, 25. Hello. It's me. I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to meet up to go over everything. They say that time is supposed to heal you. Yeah, but I ain't done much healing. Hello, can you hear me? I'm in California dreaming about who we used to be when we were younger and free. I've forgotten how it felt before the world fell at our feet. There's such a difference between us and a million miles. Hello from the other side. I must have called a thousand times. Now, I can't do justice to that, which is why I haven't sung it. But if you're trying to take meaning from this song, what do you take away from it? In that first word, hello, as she sings it, it seems to sum up the whole of the emphasis of the song itself. The loss, the pain, the yearning of years that appear to have drifted by and not knowing, and the guilt of leaving. It all seems to be there in that one, one word. And I'm using this song to prove a point. That is that we find meanings in a song or a psalm in very different ways to the way in which we look at Leviticus, law. The way in which we look at Chronicles, history. The way in which we look at the Gospels, narrative, 
plus teaching. The way we look at epistles, teaching and correction. We look at song in a very, very different way. It gives us the opportunity to ask questions. As a doctor, I'm very privileged. I'm allowed to ask the big questions in life. Who, what, why and where? But actually songs allow us to do the same thing. And we can do the same as psalms. Who's she phoning? Why did they break up? Why can't she let go? And so on. And actually, we have to do the same with Psalms if we're going to get meaning out of it. It's not like reading a narrative. They have depth conveyed in emotion. They have hidden metaphor, allegory, poetry, repetition, all used to meaning and effect. And as I said, that opening word, hello, is probably all you need to hear to know what you're going to hear next. Single words in the Psalms are meant to mean and convey depth and conjure up an image or a feeling that inspires faith. And so trying to be true to that sense of poetry within these three verses, I will try and do it some justice and paint a picture as much as give you some didactic teaching. Now, I think the first thing you'll notice of this psalm is it's called a song of ascent. And we need to put this in context. context. You see, a psalm of ascent is one of 15 psalms, and this is the last in the Psalms of Ascent. Um, They have a title which brings them together. There is a collection, a little bit like an album. Album, Ardell's 25, Songs of Ascent, God's Album, Songs of Ascent. So that's basically what they are. But they together paint a picture. They give us a theme. Just like the album 25 gives us a theme of misery, loss, sort of... uh, So destitution, depression, I don't know. Great singing, but um, it's not the most uplifting if you're really in a a bad place. Um, But these Psalms of Ascent are designed to to paint a picture for us. Together they have a thing, a theme. And that um, theme is that they describe a journey. The Psalm of Ascent starts at Psalm 120. And it starts a journey or a pilgrimage to the central point of faith in the Jewish faith at that time, and that's the temple at Jerusalem. You see, for the, <clears throat> for, for, the, for the faithful Jew to pilgrimage and go to Jerusalem was a vital part of their faith. A monologue by a Hasidic rabbi, for example, in a Yiddish play called the Debuk, conveys the sense of importance of the temple. He says this in the play, he says, God's word, world is great and holy. The holiest land in the world is the land of Israel. In the land of Israel, the holiest city is Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the holiest place was the temple. And in the temple, the holiest spot was the Holy of Holies. For the the Jew, Jerusalem and the Holy of Holies was the center of their universe. Why? Because Israel felt special Because God had told them that they were his special people. He would always be with them. And this relationship, this covenant that God made with them, was symbolized by the temple at Jerusalem. It was God's house. He lived there and it contained the symbols and practices that defined being Jewish. Defined their faith. And defined a relationship. For the faithful Jew, as long as there was a temple and a holy of holies in the middle of Jerusalem, God was with them. 
take away the temple, take away the Holy of Holies, and you remove the presence of God in the mind of the faithful Jew at that time. And these psalms were used in preparation for a visit to the temple at festival times, such as the Day of Atonement, or Passover rather, or the Day of Tabernacles, perhaps to to, to celebrate a little bit later on in the year of harvest. And they were probably recited along the way. They start in a distant land, of host, a distant hostile land, and they end up in Psalm 134 with priests worshipping in the presence of God. We know that Jesus went to the temple on at least two occasions. First of all as a child with his family, and secondly with his disciples just before he died. On both occasions they may well have used these psalms to help them in their preparation for coming to the temple. And as I say, the journey starts in Psalm 120 in a faraway land amongst enemies that people um, that uh, defied God and actually defied them as people who uh, wanted to be with God and yet brings you right the way through to Psalm 134 into the heart of God's temple, into his very presence, into uh, a a position of imagining uh, you there with the priests undertaking ritual sacrifice uh, and worship within the most holy place of Jewish faith, right in the very presence of God. And that's where I want to lead us through this psalm. On the face of it, the picture of this psalm could appear sterile. It could be that the the rituals that it's steeped in are long gone, they're unfamiliar to us, they're customs and practices that are meaningless to us in the 21st century. However, these psalms also paint a spiritual journey for us. One that we can relate to. A journey which starts with the reality of a God who's, uh, uh, with with little reality of God who's far away, untouchable. um, One that seems distant from us in our lives. And yet brings us before his throne ultimately in intimacy, forgiveness and the presence of the God who created the universe. That's a spiritual journey that's more than just Um, uh, dead practices and rituals that have long gone. You see, that journey for us is as true today as perhaps the Jew was. It was in the time of, uh, of, of Solomon's temple that we're dealing with at this particular point. Because for us, the, the, the Apostle Paul, tell, uh, the, uh, the Apostle Peter, tells us in the first epistle, and we started this book just short, recently, we are called a royal priesthood. So we're no longer onlookers to worship within the, within the temple. We are worshippers within the temple. Taking the Old, temple, Old Testament function of temple priests and placing that role upon us. And so <clears throat> it is to that place of intimacy that I want to bring us. Where we're called. And we're called with a single word. Come. God says, come. Don't be standoffish. Don't hold back. Come. And we come for a single purpose. Bless the Lord. Slightly strange if you think about it. I am to bless God. (laughs) Often we see it the other way around. It's wrong. Surely God's big. He should be blessing me. Or... 
I have to prove my worth to be in his presence. Those are the two uh, common thoughts that we have about uh, God if we're trying to come into his presence or find spiritual meaning in a journey that actually we have to come into his presence knowing how lowly we are or we come into God's presence expecting him to give us something. Yet this psalm turns it on its head. It says, come and bless the Lord. Give to God blessings to him. And that's slightly strange. But actually, God, the God of Israel, always turns things on his head, on its head, it seems to me. Think of knowing God as like a marriage. I can think, I can think that I love my wife through my job, earning a good wage, having standing in society, providing for the needs and extras of our lives, for those of our families, good holidays, and so on and so forth. But Janine may look at it very differently. Perhaps she would rather have my time to enjoy her company. Perhaps she would like opportunities for us to get to know each other and to develop the intimacy of a relationship. And it's only through the understanding that two become one in that place of intimacy that when we got married, we didn't get married to a set of rules. We committed ourselves to each other. And that's exactly what God is saying here. Contrary to the idea of society, which says... Um, we must obey the rules. We must live a good life. We must make right judgments. We must be as perfect as we can before we can come into the presence of God. Yet, underneath it all, we feel that we need to know God and be acceptable as we can, while ironically our insecurity leaves us to believe that we're worthless and can never reach that level of acceptability. A real catch-22 in society if we're trying to get into the presence of God. And as I said, God turns it on his head and he says, well, actually, what pleases me is your presence at my side. All you have to do is come and that blesses me. All you have to do is agree to be there and just walk in to my presence. Irrespective of who you are, what you do in life, getting to know me and spending time with me is what I love. Come rest with me, please, please come. Because that's where I've intended you to be. You see, the fact that you want to know God, that you want to be with God, be where he is, blesses the maker of the universe, as this psalm calls him. And that's an amazing thing, to think that God wants us by his side. And that pleases him. And I think that's wonderful. That speaks of a relationship that's deep and beautiful and loving. And the simple reality that sums up God, that God loves us more than anyone else can. And although we're called as servants, those who are expected to come, we do so because of our own free will, drawn by God's personality and by that love itself. Yet this is no ordinary calling. We're called as servants to stand and to stand by night. To stand when it's most difficult. We learned through our series of studies in the life of Joseph early in the year what it was like to be a slave, to be a servant. um, Who chose to serve because he was called to serve. But he was also a servant who went the extra mile and stood at times of difficulty. When in prison, under false accusation and so on and so forth. And night time is a difficult time to stand. 
in the reality of, 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 the, of our own night time, it's, you ask any shift worker. I was talking to, to, to Pete Rodriguez, who's a policeman, who's uh, given up, I think, night shifts recently. And uh, it's difficult to go through the night. Ask anybody in my own profession, uh, either in medicine or in nursing, what it's like at four in the morning when you started at 10 o'clock the, night, the, 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 the evening before. Night time is difficult. Your whole body says, sleep, go to bed, just, just don't do what you're doing. It's dark outside. I can't do this anymore. And yet you're called to stand. You're called to be there because God says stand. Often darkness and night is symbolic of hardship. And that's what God is saying to us here. Be prepared to stand when it gets hard, when it gets difficult. Through difficulty and loss. But actually, this also conveys something else. It conveys the fact that although we're called to stand, there will be an end to the darkness. There's an expectation within darkness of dawn. Just like the bright light of the planet Venus, which you can see in the picture down the bottom on the right-hand side, which is often called the morning star. It comes and becomes visible just before dawn emerges. It's seen in the eastern sky, and it's a picture of the herald of light to come. And so we're called to stand by night in expectation of a dawn, something new, something greater, something bigger. Even though it's difficult to stand in God's presence when things are hard. Because when things are hard spiritually, what we do is we try and put it right ourselves. We don't stand into God, we stand into ourselves. When we're hurting, we want to retreat into the security of our pain rather than take it to God and to others and say, heal me. When we're worried, our mind becomes too crowded to think of anything but worried about being worried. Yet God says, stand with me at times of night, at times of darkness, and expect the dawn. Expect the light to come. I can remember four major occasions in my own life of real and significant pain, all associated with potential loss of some part of my life. Relationship, home, friends, job, all of those things. And on each occasion, I remember wondering through the darkness of those experiences, God, where are you? Where are you? Until by standing... I came with the help of others to realisation that God is bigger than my pain. That God was worth the effort that I was wondering at the time whether it was. There was a new revelation of love through new friends, different friends. There was an encouragement in the presence of God and in the fellowship of other Christians that actually brought me through the period of dark into night. And the presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit brought about new revelation, new expectation, different and a new life in that respect. So God calls us to stand when it's hard. He also calls us to stand but not wait alone, though. And that's where we as church are so important to one another. Yet called to stand we are. I'm reminded of a story of a friend of mine, a mentor, a pastor in Richmond, uh, who's dead now, but uh, used to travel frequently to Nepal to teach uh, to the Christian church in Nepal. On one occasion, he took a helicopter ride with some uh, other members of the party to go and see Mount Everest at sunrise. The helicopter took them across to a landing point, and they had a guide with them, and they stood there, and they looked at Mount Everest, um, 
and the two that were with him gradually sort of drifted away and just went away. Um, <clears throat> and Ron, being the person he was, leant across to the guide and said, I don't think much of Everest at dawn. And the guide just simply said one word. He said, wait, wait. And within a few minutes, the sun had come up over the horizon and the tip of Mount Everest was aglow in golden light compared to all the other high peaks around them. It's a magnificent peak. I've seen it myself. But to see it at that time in the morning when the sun's come up over the horizon is just fantastic. And as Ron was telling me this story, he was saying, well, it's a picture of actually waiting in God's presence and being prepared to wait for the time that God wants to reveal himself. But the tragedy of that story, the reality of that story, is that two people left believing that they'd seen Everest at dawn when all they'd seen was a pale shadow of the event itself. <clears throat> but God doesn't leave us with our own thoughts or our own hopes when we stand in hardship. He calls us to lift our hands to the holy place, the center of the place of faith for the for faithful Jew at that time. And this is meant to be an encouragement to us as we lift our hands to the holy place. And this needs some unpacking. The phrase paints a picture of the temple that would have been carried in the mind of every faithful Jew at the time, since childhood. You see, this is the golden era of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 6, if you want to read it. In the mind of every believing Jew, we walk through the outer courts, where only Jews could go. We're in through the court of the priests, where only the tribe of Levi could go. We've moved past the altar of the burnt offerings. We've moved past the huge great bowls called lavers for washing and cleansing. And we've walked into the sanctuary where only the descendants of Aaron could go, the priests of the tribe of Levi. We've walked past columns surmounted by pomegranates into a porch and through into the holy place, to a place that would overwhelm the senses. The first thing that would hit you would be a heady sense of incense, a fragrant smell. And then the other thing that would hit you was the colour. Everything and I mean everything, was gold. There was a table of gold, an altar of gold. The cedarwood of the floor and the walls and the ceiling were all covered in gold, inlaid with images. And all of this gold would be flickering to the light of ten olive um, uh, lampstands, also made of gold. These are things that are to affront the senses and to give you a sense that you are in the presence of somebody very, very special. You're in the presence of God now. You're in the presence of God now. And we're looking at the one place that nobody could go not one person could go except the high priest and only once a year. Because at the end of Solomon's temple at the most holy place was the Holy of Holies and it's barred to us by a chain and a, a door of olive wood overlaid by gold in Solomon's temple. Not, a, not a, a curtain as we had in the second temple that we hear about in the New Testament. And the only time you could go in was when the Day of Atonement came. That day where God forgave the sins of the people by the sacrifice of an animal. And that's where we're called 
to lift our hands. We're called to lift our hands to that place. To the place where God has kept the very essence of his relationship with his people. To the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark of the Covenant, there are symbols of that relationship. Manna. Food when you're hungry and when there's nothing around to eat. The tablets of the Ten Commandments. God's law indicating that he's in control. He's in authority. He's the one who holds the universe together. The staff of Aaron. Dry, barren, yet at one point burst into bud. A symbol of new life, of revelation. Something springing from the death, from death to life. That's where we're to lift our hands to. And to the very top or the lid of that ark upon which there were two angels and a seat on which the blood of that animal was sprinkled that God called the mercy seat. The place where Israel could find forgiveness. A way through into the presence of God through sacrifice and forgiveness. And that's where we're to lift our hands to. The the psalm tells us that this act of lifting our hand to the very centrality of faith blesses God. We're to be those who are prepared to say, God, you are one who provides. God, you are one who rules. God, you are one who brings new life from death. God, you are the one who forgives and brings atonement. No wonder that blesses God. And in that place, as we look to the holy place, we find that things reverse. This is the time when God then blesses us. We find that the God of the universe blesses us from the centrality of his, be- from his, be- of his being. We started by blessing God simply by choosing to come into his presence. We've stood by night when it's hard. We reach out to a God who's made us promise after promise after promise And we acknowledge him as the one who is in control, who is Lord and is king. We seek his forgiveness and enter his promise of new beginnings, new new hope, new life. And there's where God blesses. In the reality of the hard times, in the reality of our spiritual life in heaven and on earth, we find the reality of God, God blessing those who want to come. Yet we don't live in the symbol or the symbol, symbolism of the Old Testament. We actually live in the reality of the new. The reality of the new that gives us Jesus. And we find that blessing comes not once a year with the blood of a sacrificed animal from the mercy seat on the ark, but comes every day through a sacrifice made once for all, Jesus Christ. You see, God so wanted us to come into his presence that actually he sacrificed his own son that we could do so not once a year, but every day and every second of every year. And that's something wonderful to behold. That's something to be wonderful to be part of. It's something fantastic to give our lives to. Jesus was the ultimate Servant who stood by night, suffering not of his own account, but for us. To make real those symbols within the ark. 
the reality of the covenant of God, his promises, his mercy, his forgiveness, his rule, his new life. Not in some dry, historic, ritualistic way or meaningless spirituality, but actually in a tangible way, pertinent to your life every day and my life every day in the hardships of family life, work life. What do we do with, uh, with home, with wage? What do we do when we want to change? There is the blessing of God as we stand into, into Christ. Now, I said at the beginning um, that the Psalms of Ascent were a symbol of a spiritual journey. And I hope you can see how that spiritual journey has ended in the temple in some real reality as we unpick some of the symbolism that's there. But actually, I neglected to say that it actually, there is one further thing that we need to know about the Psalm of Ascent. And that is that it doesn't finish at Psalm 134. Although it, it seems, although it might seem a great place to finish, to end, in the presence of God, reaching out to the Holy of Holies, to those things that God has said that he will, he, uh, he will promise us because we are his people, it actually finishes with worship. Why? Because Psalm 135 and Psalm 136 came after the Songs of Ascent, And these are pictures of worship. You see, once we stand in the presence of God, once we lean into his blessings and bless God in return, we find that the only way of expressing that is a love that comes out in worship. Our our, Our traveler is finished off in the temple, and in Psalm 135 we find that he's in personal praise. And then following that in Psalm 136 we find that he's with everybody else around us in corporate praise. Psalm 136 is called the Great Hallel, or the Great Hallelujah. It's got things to recite within it, and it's designed to be said and sung together as a group of people worshipping God with all of their hearts from the sight of the Holy of Holies, knowing that God is with them. And I can think of no more appropriate response to the forgiveness of a loving Heavenly Father who cares and renews our life through the sacrifice of his own son, than that of worship. But for the Christian, that's not just song. The Apostle Paul tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and that that's worship. Our life dedicated to God, who first dedicated himself to us, is a life of worship, in which, yes, we sing and we say and we give uh, worship to God with our mouths. But actually, Paul says it goes further than that. We give worship to God through our bodies and our lives in what we do. A life dedicated to God. I wonder if we could have Robin back up again and we can sing again at this point. It would be good. Thanks, Robin.